The Athletic. So with an expanded Club World Cup coming to a screen near you in 2025, what does FIFA's expanded plan mean for UEFA and the Champions League? And speaking of UEFA, as President Alexander Seferin admits the need for a rethink for the current rules, how big a threat does multi-club ownership pose to the integrity of the game? I'm Mark Chapman and this is the Athletic Football Podcast. What are we doing? Are we inventing time? Are we are we are we gonna are we gonna invent a 13th, 14th month? Because Arsene Wenger, who's one of Infantino's sort of foot soldiers these days, says, yeah, we've got to have a month off. There is this huge, hugely engaged young audience around the globe. I would say their experience is just as valuable and important as the way I got into football. Could it be that Manchester United and PSG might not be able to play against each other in the Champions League? That you may have to say one of them. Those are the current rules which we have to rethink. For me, Seferin's interview was the white flag. So still with us to discuss the future of football, Matt Slater, Adam Crafton and Laura Williamson. We did the international game on part one, so uh, catch up with that if you haven't managed to listen. And if you have listened to it, you'll know uh, how Matt gets very excited talking about Mm -hmm. calendars and formats. So... We'll start with him and harness his excitement on the new Club World Cup. Yeah, I am excited about this. <laughs> I know. Right. Come on, come on. So what is it? <laughs> what? Well, I tell you, I tell you what, it, I tell you what, it's not. Actually, Laura, do, do you have a format correspondent? Could you? Yeah, could you, Matthew Slater. Yeah, that, yeah, just he needs it as his job title. It's, it's, that's going in the Twitter bio right now. I'm, done, I'm, I'm adding it. Um, right. So I tell you what, it's not. So that's probably the best place to start. It's not the annual Club World Cup where you get it's played in December, increasingly in the Gulf states, uh, between the winners of the six confederations championships. So, you know, Champions League, uh, the Asian equivalent, Cup of Libertadores, et cetera, et cetera, CONCACAF, uh, and, and, and a team from the host nation. So you get these seven teams and uh, they play for about a week. And then someone plays the Champions League winner, usually the South Americans. And recently, the European team's been winning. All right. Now, again, we talked about this in part one, that FIFA are always trying to drive revenues, right? Because they want to distribute more cash out to their members. One, because it helps you win votes. But two, because it democratizes football, grows the game. Uh, you don't want to just see European teams winning again and again. Uh, we want to grow, grow the game around the world. And um, Johnny Fantino, who came from UEFA, who used to, you know, run or used to be very involved in the running of the Champions League, knows probably better than anybody else that the only way FIFA's ever going to get there is got one big cash cow at the moment, the Men's World Cup. We'd like to have the Women's World Cup up there. But what it really, really would love is a great club competition. And the annual club World Cup isn't that. Okay, it's... Mildly interesting. Well, it's interesting if your team's in there. But if your team's not there, most of us don't care. So we get to his big idea. He's been pushing it for a few years. He tried to get it across the line pre-COVID. He actually had an agreement. Europe didn't like it, but the rest of the world were like, yeah, go for it. And we're going to do it in China. Uh, COVID struck and it's been put on hold. In Doha, clearly with the wind in his sails, 
he went, you know what? We're definitely doing it. We're doing it in the next available slot. We're going to do it in the summer of 2025. It's going to be every four years, and it's going to be a 32-team extravaganza. Broadly speaking, it is your last four winners of uh, your Confederation Cup championship. So that is why we know that Chelsea and Real Madrid, for example, are in. Chelsea get in as the 2021 winner. Real get in as the 2022 winner. There'll be a 23 winner, a 24 winner. We won't have a 25 winner in time or they think it's too close once they start doing all the format stuff. So those, those are your four European teams that definitely will qualify via that route. And then the next eight will just come from the European coefficient rankings. And there's a limit of two per country. So if we were to do the sort of tournament now, Chelsea, Real Madrid, they just have a look at those, those, that list of great teams and they're all there. All, all your big boys are there. And the idea is there'll be a lot of games, a lot of great content, and we will crown the best club in the world. Infantino said the this expanded tournament would be like a World Cup. You could argue, bearing in mind some of the stuff that we talked about on part one, it might be better than a World Cup, Adam. Is this actually going to happen? <laughs> what, this podcast or the... Did, this podcast did, was, did, like, I mean, is, after is they've it, heard Matt's five-minute explanation that they'll just decide what, to abandon sorry, this one. What the listener didn't see was that at the start of that very exciting speech, Matt actually took his glasses off yeah. as part of his like delivery flourish <laughs> as, as well, um, <laughs> which was great. Um, yeah, so, so is this all signed off, ratified, ECA approved, UEFA approved? Is it subject to challenge? Is this something I actually have to engage with long term? Engage. It's happening. Look, there's there's a few little bits and bobs to sort out, some stakeholders to drag along. But the key thing is world football wants this. And actually, Europe's opposition to it has very quietly been dropped because they've been told by their clubs, shut up, Alexander. We quite like the sound of this. So next question. At what point does this become... Because at the moment, it feels very democratic. You know, you get a couple from Africa, a couple from Asia, a couple from South America, a couple from Europe. There's going to be a few big European clubs that aren't in this first one that quite want to be in it if it's as big as the FIFA World Cup. At what point does this just become a Europe fest and at what point does it become a Champions League threat? Good question. Probably have to see it a couple of times. Now, look, if what you're asking is, does this kill the Super League? Or does it, in some ways, actually increase the likelihood of the Super League? I don't know. The Super League as an idea is never going to go away. It's just an idea. It's a powerful idea, compelling idea. It will never go away. Don't forget everything that's going on in European football anyway, with the Champions League expanding, them getting more games, You know, ideas around taking the Champions League abroad, ideas that clubs already have around more tournaments, pre-season tournaments, all those things are happening anyway. Does this new idea, which does have meritocracy baked in at the start, does this make you know those frightening things more likely to happen or less likely to happen? I, I, I would say I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't see it either way at the moment. Let's, let's see it. Let's see a couple of editions of it. And if you're right, if Real Madrid or Barcelona or Bayern or Man United aren't in there and actually really start agitating because it's good, because we're all watching, and they're like, hold on a minute, this might be the best thing. Football will do what football does and do more of it, yeah, won't yeah. they? 
But I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't say that now. I couldn't say, "Oh my God, this is a dreadful idea." Because what happens if Liverpool, Man United, miss the first one, start agitating with AC Milan and Inter, and oh, here we go again. We're just we're back at the same debate we were two years ago. The the argument to Manchester United, Liverpool, and both Milan clubs is maybe do better on the field, and you, you'll 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 be in this tournament. I mean. You've sort of said it, Laura, you know, football does what football does and then just does more of it. You know, and we always think it's in danger of eating itself, the amount of football there is. And the other danger, of course, is immediately in the world we live in, any new idea is immediately criticised because that's what happens. And anything to do with FIFA is immediately criticised because that's what happens. If you put aside all of those things, do you like the sound of it? Yeah, I do. I do. But as ever with football, something has to give. Because you just can't keep creating new formats and making things bigger. Like there are only so many days in a year, and something's something's got to give. And also with a with with a tournament every four years, especially in club football, you know the Chelsea that won the Champions League, or not the Chelsea that will play in twenty twenty five. That's mm. a completely unrelated team. Um, therefore, in terms of form, and you know, you are you getting the best teams at that time? No, you're not. You're not. Um, so there's all all those things to throw in, but the idea I think I think is good. But you know, it's another thing. You know, we're we're at the we're at the stage now where we've almost got to rip it up and start it again, because you know the whole club game <laughs> completely. Yeah. Surely we've we've passed saturation. You know, FIFA Pro, the um, World Players Union, will tell you we are. We're past that point. You know, what where's the give? Because you know the teams that aren't in this Club World Cup will devise something of their own, whether that's going you know, on a massive tour of America or playing in Asia or whatever it is. Players can't keep playing all this football. The other thing with this, I'm guessing, Adam, as well, is that it is the global nature. It won't appeal to the players who are probably knackered, but it's a global nature that are, is appealing to executives in that they could they could play this wherever they want in a sport that well, all sports are obsessed with globalization, aren't they? Really? Yeah. So, so Matt, where is it? Is it? Is there been a sort of an initial host laid out? Or is it just open to bidding? It's open to bidding. And look, um, one of the things around that sort of calendar issue, I'll do it really quickly. Is FIFA is saying they're actually kind of replacing something? So they're taking out the Confederations Cup. Remember that? Can I remember the hands up? You yeah. remember that one? Who was in that? Go on, yeah. Mark. You love it. Go on. Who was in it? It was the uh, host nation of the upcoming World Cup because it was then seen as the tester event for that. I only remember it because it was one of the first things that I presented for the BBC on television and Gus Poyet was sacked by Brighton during the first <laughs> half of one of the games he was doing, which we then had to talk to him about at half time. So that's why the Confederations <laughs> Cup means so much to me. And who- People assumed that I had sacked Gus Poyet. <laughs> I didn't say no, he knew before I did. I didn't just break it to him live on telly. Not that much of a heartless shit. Harsh, <laughs> harsh. <laughs> who won the tournament? Oh my! I have no idea. There I had to you consult go. Gus Poyet for two weeks. But there you, know. you go. Right. So, you, so you a memorable, a memorable moment in your broadcasting career, and yeah. you can't remember who won the tournament. <laughs> there have been so many, wow. man. Honestly, um, um, but but it what? But actually, it was an important test event for the host nation 100%. as regards getting ready for a, a World Cup. So FIFA have taken that out. It was it was as you say, host nation warm up event year before a World Cup versus the Euro winner, the Asian winner, right? Blah, blah, blah. You make a tournament out of that. 
used to take, I can't remember now, about two weeks, something like that. So, so, yeah. And uh, I can't remember any winners either. <laughs> yeah. So that was not a great tournament, apart from preparing the host nation. So that's the slot it's going in. So FIFA saying we're giving something up and we're replacing it with something better. Now, does America, the next men's host, want or need a preparation tournament? They're kind of saying no. We might like it, but we don't need the preparation, right? We're, we we stage massive events with these most of the venues of NFL stadiums. We're you know we're pretty good, right? We're pretty we're pretty sure we can put put some games on, um, and so I think that's interesting. And I think these people are then going, oh hold on a minute, who who quite likes hosting big events at the moment? The golf, but it's got to go in the summer. So do you just do you just basically try and air condition everything and go for it? Don't know. So that so that's 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 the debate. I, th- I think to, to go back to the question that you're asking in terms of wh- where these things take place, Chappers, and, and whether that matters, I think the advantage this has, with it being a new concept, you're not, you know, if you were to take the Champions League out of Europe, if you were to take the Premier League to the States for a game, there's all the sort of natural reactionism, conservatism, you know, you're ripping up history, tradition... Whereas this is a bit of a black a blank canvas, and you can paint your own future with it. The, the question that I suppose FIFA then wants to ask is, who are we? Are we trying to really engage European audiences with this? Do we care about that if they're bothered or not, or is it all about you know actually taking this to the states and really trying to get into their audience? Is it about using it as another crutch for Middle Eastern cash and engaging that audience? Is it about you know, obviously China's now starting to open up bit by bit. Is it a way of bringing China back to the football table, possibly? Um, so I think those are the three places that it will be. It's not going to be held in Europe, right? I would I would think. It was going to be the States, the Gulf, or China, or maybe you know, a kind of Morocco, Egypt kind of vibe, possibly as well. I think those those are the options. But I do think if you start taking it to the Gulf in the summer, you're basically alienating a lot of match-going fans. Now, FIFA might say, we're not bothered, because that's not the audience that we're trying to lure. And it may be that it's a better... You know, if you put it in Saudi with the kind of fanaticism that we've seen from the from the Saudi football supporters during the World Cup, it might be a great spectacle anyway on TV. So those are the questions. And it's all about kind of the hierarchy of what we consider to be match-going fans. Well, and, and there you go. And therefore, does the race, Laura, for globalisation alienate match-going fans? I think it's one of the fundamental issues that football's got to tackle over the next few years. Because, I mean, certainly since joining the Athletic, it's the main thing I've learned, really, that, you know, I... I grew up as a batch going fan that that you know what the atmosphere in grounds all the rest of it is incredibly important to me that's why I that's why I love football that's why I have a career in football but that's almost the minority now there's this there is this huge hugely engaged young um probably quite affluent audience around the globe that I would say their experience is just as valuable and important as the way I got into football. So, um, so, so, did you hit the thumbs up then on this comment on the Athletic uh, website, which is from uh, Benjamin, 
Do supporters in Asia, North America, South America and Australia not count? There are more people watching these games outside of Europe than from Europe. Should the fans who are responsible for billions of pounds of broadcasting income in both the Premier League and Champions League not be allowed to watch one or two games in person in their lifetime? Seems like a small thing, especially as UEFA and the Premier League are looking to increase the number of matches, meaning that domestic fans aren't losing any matches from the current calendar. Yeah. Would you hit a thumbs up on that? I would because I think try try not to be sort of snobby about it. Joey Derso, one of our writers, is in India at the moment. Um, he's been looking at the Indian Super League, and um, he went to a bar in Mumbai and the other night, and it's one thirty in the morning, and it's full of people in Manchester United kits who have stayed up late to watch their FA Cup tie. Like, who who am I to say that they're experience and passion for football is lesser than mine was so many years ago when I was putting my Grimsby Town shirt on and walking down the road um, and it's and and obviously we can't neglect the match the match game fans who make you know English football certainly what what it is but I think there has to be a way to um, to give this massive global audience something that they want and, and the other thing is to say that lots of people, um, lots of our subscribers, lots of people we talk to say, well, no, the reason I like, this is more Premier League football, but the reason I like it is because it's authentic and I want want it to stay in English stadiums. I don't want to take it on the road. You you do find as well that sometimes international fan bases actually mirror those views of the domestic fan because in some ways they're trying to absorb so much into the culture. They will say, no, I, I want my Manchester United home games at Old Trafford because I, I recognise that and I believe in the culture, the history and all of this kind of thing. At the same time, I think the domestic fan also has this this real idea of completionism about his right to support his team. That, you know, you have those kind of crazy supporters or committed supporters, however you want to frame them, that will go to every pre-season game. They'll go on every pre-season tour. They'll they would expect to go to every single meaningful fixture that their that their club plays in. And actually, long term, is that just something we have to recognise? Well, maybe actually this club might have billions of fans around the world according to its according to its accounts. Um maybe you don't get to go to hundred percent of games, you might get to go only go to ninety-five percent of games, and this 0.5% of fans who you know, who you don't consider to be so important, actually get get that right. And it doesn't seem, you know, when you paint it like that, it doesn't seem like such a big compromise to make. But there is such an embedded idea, I think, of the right of the local fan in the local stadium that it's very, very difficult to break away from that. Do you find, sorry, Matt, I was going to say, do you find, as Adam has summed it all up, do you find that this is a... A, a huge dilemma and debate amongst club executives when you're at these conferences. It is, for all the reasons that Adam and Laura have touched upon. So, you know, on the one hand, certainly if we look through the prism of the Premier League, we're very proud of the Premier League. You know, the government's incredibly proud of the Premier League and has been for, for several years now. It's one of, you know, our great exports. It's a fantastic soft power tool. If we think about the things that we genuinely could say that we're kind of world leading at, it, it, it's one of them, club football. You know, and it, there's, there's, there's tourism, 
You know, you can go to any of the big Premier League games now. You can go to Wrexham games if you like and hear the same thing. You know, you'll hear it, it brings people to the country, and that's that's important, right? It's important for lots of reasons. On the flip side, and of course, the clubs themselves, you know, one of the reasons the Premier League has got so good is because of its international TV rights, because of its commercial sponsors. You know, it, the Premier League is a, is a great reflection of hundreds of years of Britain being open. We're open. That's, 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 that's one of the stories of British economic history. You know, we, we, we're not precious and overly nationalistic about our assets. We, we trade, we sell. You know, come here, you're fine, you're welcome. You know, it's one of the good things about our country. So the Premier League reflects that. But on the flip side, you've got the things that Adams talked about. And you can go into any big club dilemma around the legacy fan, the local fan versus the international fan. And I think our site, I don't know, you know, obviously I love our site, but I think our site is a really fascinating place to see this. Go have a look at the comments to a European Super League story. Go have a look at the comments about a, I don't know, a, a foreign tour or Champions League finals abroad. And you will see a fascinating debate that to me is modern football between the guys that, the guys that, born 10 miles away from Liverpool or Manchester or Arsenal or wherever it is versus this massive, huge, and not homogenous, by the way, because different people, as the things Adam was pointing out, view these things differently. But my God, a, a, a bazaar of, of views and opinions on, well, hold on a minute, don't we count? Doesn't, you know, you want, you want my subscription you want my you want me buying official merchandise, but then I get to see a game every now and then. Is that so bad? So yeah, I I, I think this is one of the big stories. And where does Seferin sit on this, Matt? Do you do you do you know? I mean, because we looked at it from the FIFA Club World Club Cup thing that we talked about. The the, the start, it needs a better name, doesn't it? That yeah, we yeah. talked about at the start. <laughs> yeah. But where do, where does Seferin sit on this? What in charge of UEFA, both from looking at domestic leagues and what they may do, but also what his main tournament, the Champions League, may do. I think he's just as conflicted as a lot of the rest of us, as a lot of the, you know, the main the main the main guys are making these decisions. When he was elected, he was deemed to be a champion of small and medium sized countries. He comes from Slovenia. And that he was going to stand up uh to the big five, to the big the big international powers, and make sure that one, there'd never be things like Super Leagues. I'm going to fight for solidarity money so the big clubs don't get to take it all. Uh, and if you think about some of the things he's really proud of, you know, he's got that third cup competition back in, the Conference League. The Nations League was sort of deemed to be a way of the fact that it's tiered and you can move up and down. And it's, you know, it's great fixtures for your, you know, your, your Maltas and, uh, but, but also all the Balkan states and you know, everyone. Everyone gets to play at the right level, but you can move up. You can aspire upwards in the way you can in club football. So he's done things like that. But at the same time, he's let the big clubs, he's got this very close relationship with the European Club Association, very close relationship now with Nasser Khalifi. He's given the big clubs a bigger Champions League. And he has repeatedly gone to bat for big European football against FIFA. You know, he's instinctively gone, oh, I don't know about that, because that sounds like a threat to the European status quo, which is, you know, us at the top. So, yeah, uh, I think he wants to be the champion of the little guy, but constantly is probably being reminded 
uh, don't be too much the champion of the little guy because it doesn't make sense for the books. And if we start to like, you know, say no to them here, well, then you get the European Super League coming right back at you. So he's conflicted. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. This multi-club ownership question is an interesting question. I think we, we should think about it for the future and see what to do. I mean, from one point of view, it's true that if you are the owner of two clubs and they play in the same competition, you can say to one club lose because you want the other to win. But for you as a football player, do you think it's so easy to do that? To tell a coach lose the match because the other wants to win? What's also risen, not necessarily just under his leadership, but in recent years, Adam, is, is the multi-club model, which at the moment appears to be only going in one direction. Yeah, more and more and more of it, um, which is interesting because we don't really know if it's a sustainable working model. We know it's a sustainable working model when you know, you've got the funds of Abu Dhabi behind you. We know it's a sustainable working model when you've got a huge drinks company behind you like Red Bull. Is it a sustainable working model when, you know, someone decides to buy a club in the championship, a club in the third division in France, a club in the second division in Italy, a club in the Indian Super League and wants to make profit from it? We don't really know yet. There's not, I don't think there's enough evidence to, to say it, but it's very much popular. It's very much in, in, in on vogue at the moment. I think it's becoming a very, very central question to the Manchester United takeover because you had this situation where you had, obviously, PSG owned by a Qatari entity and another Qatari entity effectively having to be set up in order to to, to try and buy Manchester United because you couldn't have... Well, they probably could have found a way in the end if they'd have really fought it, but it made it smoother to have separate entities. And then you also have, even more pressingly, Ineos who own uh, the French club Nice, bidding to buy Manchester United as well. And, you know, Jim Ratcliffe's probably getting a pretty pretty easy ride at the moment over. He's not basically answered the question of, if you're the Manchester United owner in a month's time, how on earth are you going to deal with this? So that is becoming a huge question. And I think it's a question economically in terms of, is this a viable business model? Um, it's a question that I think has issues ethically around should these clubs that as we've been saying are kind of bastions of local communities and meant to really represent a local community be kind of folded into a group and be kind of used as a resource or part, as part of a network for a broader kind of conglomerate um and it does seem like based on Sheffrin's interview with Gary Neville last week that the rules are going to change and it's going to become a lot easier for these big kind of conglomerates of football clubs to, to develop. 
Ollie Kaylor wrote in The Athletic, no fewer than 82 of its top-tier clubs now have a cross-investment relationship with one or more clubs. They also then added, um, it goes out saying that the majority of them will not be successful. On the one hand, I think it can be very clever, you know, when when you when you look at um, all the uh, post Brexit rules that came in, um, and a way for clubs to get to get round, you can't not being able to transfer under 18s anymore is, well, have a partnership, stroke, invest with a with a club on the continent, do it that way. Look at what Tony Bloom's doing with the club in Belgium and Brighton. You know, that seems that seems sensible and there seems thought behind it. But the flip side of that is it's the the hoovering up that we we get the the end result of all of this is we we get to a position where it's well Ollie said three or four but you know five or six big conglomerates basically basically running football which clearly we don't want but um, UEFA have got themselves in a complete bind with it since the Red Bull case you know as soon as you've got Salzburg and Leipzig playing each other in a European match how do you how on earth do you come back from that? Tony, uh, Laura mentioned Tony Bloom there, Matt, and Adam mentioned Jim Radcliffe and Ineos. Laura said that that Tony Bloom's it, it makes a lot of sense if you look at Brexit rules and whatever. Jim Radcliffe going to Adam has got an easy ride. Does it depend on the size of the clubs that you own? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think the um, that Union Saint Gilles story with Brighton has perhaps crept up on people because they came, you know, they came from nowhere. He's you know they've they've had an incredible sort of recovery turnaround, um, and Brighton, of course, haven't yet made sort of serious Europe. Well, haven't played in Europe yet. I think I think there's a chance, right? So there's so we have actually haven't got to that point yet. I think the I think the point with with Nice and United is Nice have played in Europe for the last few years, and of course United see themselves playing in Europe every year. So there is a there's very obvious. You wait for issue there because there is a rule at the moment that you can't play in the same competition if your owner has control over both of you. So that was the the, the infamous Red Bull case with Salzburg and Leipzig. And Laura's right, you know, your UEFA didn't did it cave? Yeah, certainly didn't put up a very good fight. Uh, Red Bull Red Bull worked out a way of creating separation, um, and. Um, that was allowed to happen, and yet we've seen for the last three, four years that that relationship, the whole premise of the multi-club model, which is to create a network, to share data, to share players, to provide shop windows, the same thing that the Pozzos have been doing at Udinese and Watford, the same yeah. thing that the Chatelet was doing with his clubs, the same thing that Enic were doing with their clubs 25 years ago, Red Bull have done it better than most, right? And yet they're doing it in the Champions League. And UEFA had a look at it, and UEFA lost. And because it lost, I, I think I think it can't hold the line. So Sef, for me, Seferin's interview was the fl- the white flag. From your point of view, Laura, just a just a final one on this. If uh, I'll just pick a random club here, if Sevilla decided to take a stake in Grimsby, would you be happy? If they're going to give us all their players, that would be all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think initially my reaction would be to struggle with it, and I'd have to, I'd have to, I'd have to look at it and and think, you know, why, you know, why ultimately, and I mean, clearly in that position, Grimsby will be the feeder. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, you know, would I, would I want to, want to, want to follow a, a club that is classified as a feeder club, i.e., you know, 
sacrificing themselves for the greater good, so to speak. And it, I wouldn't would be the answer. It would have to be a reciprocal relationship, i.e. the model Bloom's managed to uh, manage to create. We know they're in the quarterfinals of the Europa League. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's another one of those those big questions about what we want our football to be and to look like. When you have that kind of big brother, baby brother relationship, you know, Manchester City and Mumbai City, right, for, for example, maybe this is just our perspective. It kind of sits a bit easier. When I look at something like Crystal Palace, mm. Leon, that I find very, very difficult in terms of what is the balance of power between those networks, who's getting the focus, who, you know, if there's a spare five million in the ownership group that summer, who's getting the cash, you know, for, for a summer transfer. And I think fans will be looking at that as well. And I think the owners have to be very, very careful about which clubs they take on and how that's perceived. I, I think that's a very dicey issue. When you're working in very different markets, as CFG have done, they've managed to not really cross over each other's paths too much but I think that Crystal Palace Leon one is really interesting to want to watch going forward and what happens with United as well and United Nice Ratcl- yeah Ratcliffe's made made play for Chelsea made a massive play for Manchester United if he doesn't get United what does he do just go back to Nice and say oh well I'll focus on you now I mean if I was a Nice fan I'd be up in arms look yeah I completely flat well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think Adams Adams hit the nail on the head, right? It, it, we're creating farm teams, like US style farm teams, and a lot of these groups are, you know, American. A lot of the new ones, anyway, are American. And in a in a baseball farm system, there is absolutely no dispute that the mud hens are below the the skylarks are below the whatever, right? And you all go up to the major league, right? There's no row over player, right? That's that's the that's the is the is the pathway, but. I think Leon and Crystal Palace, really interesting. Botafogo in the same group. Um, I think 777 are really interesting, this American group. that have been buying up stakes in clubs that seem quite similar to me. Standelier, Sevilla, Genoa, Hertha Berlin. Where's the pecking order there? Looking at Everton. Everton. Yeah. You know, um, even Paliuka. Uh, also, rule rules out severe for Grimsby. It does. Does it? Does, does, it does a little bit. the wrong Blast. example. Yeah, Damn. Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. Grimsby on a, on a level there. Where you know <laughs> they've got aspirations and dreams too, as we know. So I think that's where it becomes problematic. And even the City Football Group, which Adams right, have been cannier. They have gone strategic, right? So places of importance to Abu Dhabi, New York, Mumbai, uh, Japan, etc. Uh, one in China. But the European teams have been very much the minnows, like Lommel and I can't remember the one in Belgium. Um, Girona. Well, yeah, Girona, a little stake in Girona. So they, they haven't created potential competitors for European places with their group. But they tried to buy one in the Netherlands. And the fans of that team were like, we don't want to be anyone's farm team. We don't want to be anyone's B team. Mm. And they said no. So there was a setback there, even, even to see, you know, CFG, who thought, you know, surely you want to be part of our gang. No, we don't. So... Yeah, I think the multi-club model is it is the idea of the moment, but my God, does it throw up some huge questions and challenges to football administrators and fans. So finally, from all of you, then, and we did the international game yesterday, done the club game today. Are you optimistic in general? Are you, as in about football, not not just, not just in life? <laughs> are you are you optimistic in general? Are you optimistic about one side of the game than the other, more international than club or vice versa, or are you fearful? 
Uh, Matt. Well, I am an optimist. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. I, I, have a very rosy, I have a very rosy outlook on life, Laura, generally speaking. Uh, I, need, I need to. I'm, I'm pretty neutral. I think football goes through, it, you know, it's, it's never, I don't go too far with football one way or the other. Um, Infantino, um, it, I think it's a bit of an issue, uh, you know, that sort of kind of autocratic streak, massive sort of democratic deficits there with these standing ovations and people not running against him. But, you know, like, I sort of understand why they're not for what we talked about in part one with the money and what have you. And incumbents tend to do well. I do worry about too much, killing the golden goose. Um, I, I worry about players because I forgot in in the calendar thing that you that you cut me short on, Mark. Everyone seems to agree that players need more rest. So what are we doing? Are we inventing time? Are we are we are we going to are we going to invent a thirteenth, fourteenth month? Because Arsene Wenger, who's one of Infantino's sort of foot soldiers these days, says, "Yeah, we got to have a month off." Well, hold on a minute. <laughs> where, where, where's that going? Mm. Um, so yeah, there are some there are some things that I I worry about, and I worry about fans. You know. How much? How much of this can we can we take? Do we? Do, I don't know. I like other sports too, so I worry about them. Laura, I'd say overall, I'm I'm fearful. Um, I think I think for lots of the, lots of the reasons we've talked about, it feels like there's almost a day of reckoning coming. But to go back to a point Adam made, is there anyone at the top that would want to rip it up and start again? And, you know, and I think I think about you know, with TV and the way we consume football and streaming and what happens there and and definitely player welfare because, you know, you look at pictures of Jude Bellingham, all of whatever he is, 1920, and he's, his legs are strapped up and his shoulders strapped up and just playing too much football. So I do think there needs to be a sort of recalibration, but at the same time, I don't particularly have faith in the people at the top to do that. Adam? Feels a bit question time, this doesn't it? As a, as a kind of <laughs> close, closing remarks, um, <laughs> did, it's just going to be different. It's going to be different. I'm not kind of optimistic or fearful. I, I don't need to be. Um, yeah, it won't. I think fundamentally, it won't be as bad and scary as we sometimes make it out that it will be, and it won't be as exciting as Gianni Infantino makes it out to be. Um, I think it will. You know, it's enough. It's, it's another couple of weeks in the summer um, in 2025. It's one more week in 2026 in, in the reality bit. Player welfare stuff, I'm a bit less... I'm a bit more on my dad's side of that argument in the sense of, you know, I think, you know, sports science is getting better than ever. Injury prevention is getting better than ever. Player care is better than ever. Maybe that's a bit mean. Maybe that's a bit... Maybe I'm going to get cancelled for, for dis- dismissing the player away. <laughs> player welfare um but I, I worry about that a little bit less than the than, than the other guys I, I think there are amazing opportunities for growth in these other parts of the world and a huge amounts of the of the world that kind of still hasn't had that opportunity to have meaningful action but there are all these different tensions within it that i find very interesting didn't answer your question well, I'm used to that. I'm starting <laughs> to think I might get your dad on in future. Who might yeah, yeah. answer them? He sounds good. Uh, <laughs> Thank you to Adam and to Laura and to Matt. Uh, if you've not got an athletic subscription, simply head to theathletic.com slash football pod for our latest offer, which is £1.99 a month for 12 months. That's it for now. There'll be another episode tomorrow. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.